mid-1991, as we move into the final months of the Cold War, the machine sent another Terminator from the future to try to stop the human resistance. Meanwhile, on the other side of the United States, we get the confessions of one Patrick Bateman. He can't see the value of human life, but maybe the machines can learn. You need to return some tapes, but they'll be back. In a sudden outburst, you see the films play out in a fit of double vision. Alright, I'm here with Emmett Penny, co-host of Exhaust, a podcast about why nothing feels possible. And so today we're looking at the insane world of 1991, looking at Brett Easton Ellis's novel American Psycho, released in March of that year, and then Terminator 2, released a few months later in July. And so Emmett, you had suggested this topic, which looking over these two works ended up being very interesting. Would you want to introduce a bit, you know, what's going on? Yeah, certainly. So I picked these books because they, or not these books, uh, this book in this movie, when you reached out to me, because I was very interested in the idea of killing automatons as imagined towards the end, right before the end of the Cold War in December of 91, when the USSR finally falls apart. And in Terminator 2, I was fascinated by some of the themes around history, future, and the future, and you know what seems possible at that moment and that the shift from sort of the incessant anxiety and paranoia of Terminator 1 to a more spectacular and optimistic Terminator 2 seemed to mark some sort of shift in the cultural consciousness of the time. And then American Psycho seems to deny (laughs) Uh, that that's the case, um, especially in its ending. But both of these books, uh, both of these works focus on the machine, psychotic machine of Pat Bateman, who is a Wall Street financier that seems to be unable to stop himself from going on murdering sprees, real or imagined. And Terminator 2 sort of has the reformed soul of the terminating machine as it comes back in time to defend Sarah Connor and her son, John from a new model, a liquid Terminator that is capable of impersonating anybody and is a much more advanced model than the Arnold Schwarzenegger model, the T-1000, I think it's called. I can't remember which is which. I always screw up the names. But Schwarzenegger's machine is is way more mechanical. And that's interesting to me because he, it's way more Fordist in that way. You know, it represents something that might be made on a factory line, whereas the liquidity of the newer model seems much more diffuse. It can, as I said, impersonate anybody. It is like decentralized within itself. You know, there's a moment at the end that I thought was very interesting where the liquid Terminator traps Schwarzenegger in the gears of a steel mill by jamming his mechanical arm in there. And of course, that would be impossible for this newer model. So there seem to be some shifts also in, you know, what we might call like a liquid modernity, as I think some sociologist has called it, and symbolizes something in the death of the Fordist understanding of mechanisms and things like that. Right. And, you know, I haven't actually watched anything beyond Terminator 1 and 2, so I don't know where the threat comes back. But there's a shift really where the sort of end goal of Terminator 1 is just that you have to get this kid born who's going to be the resistance leader. And then Terminator 2 is much more spectacular where it's like, well, we're going to go and change the future and prevent the sort of nuclear apocalypse from even happening. 
it was interesting where, you know, in the end of the first one, you have the factory setting and that's where he dies and you have the sort of parallel from the machines crushing the human skulls at the beginning to them crushing the Terminator skull. And then, of course, in the end of Terminator 2, you have to melt down the more liquid robot. I had actually was wondering if this is related to sort of the things I think you're interested in with your project. If you've read Climate Trauma or Seeing the Future in Dystopian Film and Fiction by Ian Kaplan, something I was thinking of watching a Terminator 2. No, I haven't. That sounds interesting, though. So she gets into this idea of pre-trauma, which is like post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's for something that hasn't happened yet. And looking at that in terms of depictions of climate disaster, but I was reminded of that where that's like sort of exactly what's going on with Sarah Connor in Terminator 2, where she's haunted by these nightmares of the blast, one of the most iconic scenes in the film. She has these nightmares of kids playing, and she's at the fence trying to warn them, and then the blast comes, and they're all just blown away. And she has this dream every night, apparently. So that's one of the premises of the film where you set up in the first one, you have this victory where you get the, um, she's saved, they stop the Terminator, and she is pregnant, and she's going to have this kid who's going to be this hero in the future. But then it's like, how insane is it to raise this kid knowing all of this stuff about the future, and to try to raise him within our normal everyday world, but trying to teach him within that world how to become this resistance fighter for this war against the machines. And that I think it gives it an interesting core with some interesting parallels to the the novel where there's this idea that there's this epigraph at the beginning from Notes from Underground is a quote how the character is fictional, but such people must exist because of the way society is formed these days. And so you have Patrick Bateman who's kind of crazy, but it's also this idea that this whole world that he's in, particularly Wall Street, but also more broadly sort of consumerist world of the sort of late 80s, early 90s, is this crazy world that promotes this sort of figure. Yeah, and it's a world that doesn't really make sense. So American Psycho comes out in 1991, but takes place in the late 80s, basically right on the cusp of the shift from Ronald Reagan to George H.W. Bush. And around this moment, there are all sorts of, there's a big mergers and acquisitions frenzy that has a long lineage, even from the 50s of what corporations are up to in shifting things around. And there's sort of an absurdity to it. I mean, I think the RJR Nabisco case is probably the most notorious of these. But Bateman and all his friends who always confuse each other, by the way, like no one seems to really know each other's name or know who they're looking at, which is an interesting feature of the book because they're all so similar, you know, are all in their mid-20s from incredibly wealthy families. And all of them are somehow executive vice presidents at the same company or vice presidents or something like that. And it's very unclear what any of them do for a living except for go out to dinner and work out, especially Patrick Bateman. And so there seems to be this interesting disconnects with reality that are happening in both books. There's sort of the pre-trauma of the Sarah Connor Cassandra element where she knows that this horrible thing is going to happen. She's been institutionalized. She has tried and failed in some way to raise her son to become this hero. Failed in that she eventually gets caught or something happens. It's sort of unclear what goes on there, but she's raised him with all these like weird mercenary people or whatever all over the world trying to train him up to be this. And then Patrick Bateman, who seems to live in a world of non-reality, you know, it's obvious he's unreliable as you move through the novel, especially with sort of the refrains of this morning talk show he's obsessed with called the Patty Winter Show. Sometimes he's talking about the Patty Winter Show and it seems something plausible, like it's a talk show, the episode about discussions with 
teen lesbians or something like that. And then other times it's the Patty Winter show where she interviews a Cheerio for a half hour and his crimes get increasingly more severe, at least you think. And it's unclear whether he's actually committing them or imagining them. But then it's unclear whether it matters either way because people seem to think it's a joke or that it's impossible or that they have their own stake in not acknowledging that he's this sort of monster. So in both films, there seems to be a difficulty with reckoning with the present in any sort of real way for the characters. Yeah, I also noticed the issue with the Patty Winter show where it gets increasingly absurd and he's tracing this constantly. Every time there's anything going on, he also parallels it with noting what's going on in the show. And he's increasingly obsessed with television and film as part of his reality in some ways more real than his reality. And so one of the films that he's constantly taking out, you know, every every scene is also like his excuse is like, oh, I have to go return videotapes. And one of the ones he's constantly renting, interestingly, and you know, he doesn't just buy them. So he rents films is Body Double. And it comes out the same year as Terminator 1. And there's this level in which he's imagining himself as this sort of character who is this sort of unstoppable killing machine, maybe not thinking of himself necessarily as a Terminator, but that sort of 80s crime lord, action hero kind of person in in different levels. And there's also this constant self-depiction as animalistic. There's so many lines where it's just him saying that he was literally foaming at the mouth. And so, yeah, so one of the things going on is that he's constantly trying to confess and tell people, oh, I'm a psychopath. I've killed people. At the office costume party, he even wears a costume as the driller killer. And on the sign that says, I'm the driller killer, it just says, yep, that's me. Yeah, and he has, as part of the costume, like an actual finger that's oiled down to just the bone and like Mm -hmm. real human hair and all this stuff. And, you know, there are these moments where he seems to be trying to get caught in some ways, but then no one believes him. And part of that, I think, is this anxiety about self-recognition where people keep seeing him as like, oh, you're, you're so shy. That's romantic. Oh, Patrick Bateman would never do that. He's too nice and all these things and he wants to be seen as powerful in certain ways and I I think this anxiety around you know they're all as you mentioned they all have the same exact job which also doesn't seem to entail much of anything and so they get caught up in these very minor petty disagreements you know the most famously from the movie is the card scene where they compare their slightly different business cards but then you know it's it's all these things like haircuts what are uh, the rules of fashion at some point they're trying to figure out who's going to get into the gq q and a one of the things that people are always asking Bateman about are outfit questions so is it acceptable to wear argyle socks in a business setting to which he responds no they're too sporty and too casual but you could wear them in x y and z way in this x y and z setting you know and they're also doing a very big like keeping up with the joneses thing we're like who there's at some point he gets in this dick measuring contest with this guy over their cd players and which are the most advanced and he somehow humiliates the guy during this dinner it's also the same dinner where you start to realize there's a slippage between bateman revealing himself and anybody's ability to notice that about him the self-recognition thing as you say you know he's speaking to this woman and she's trying to talk about how the restaurant that she wants to go to is new california cuisine (laughs) he goes you know the woman that he showed up with is barred 
out and can't talk. So he has to carry this totally mundane conversation with this woman he absolutely abhors that he's met for the first time. And he says, well, I know that there's like neo-California cuisine and then traditional California cuisine. So I imagine that like the new California is, you know, like wasabi burritos or something like that. And then he basically says, and by the way, I think you should be skinned alive and you look like Garfield run over by that. He was just like, and then I think probably fettuccine or something like that too. Am I getting close? And she's just like, yes, exactly. You're so knowledgeable. So despite the fact that he tells this woman to her face that he thinks that she is basically a cartoon animal that looks like it's been run over on the side of the road and she deserves to be skinned alive. She's only capable of hearing the things that she can relate to because part of what happens is everybody's performing. Everybody's doing some sort of iteration of fitting in. At some point, somebody, somebody says, Patrick, why do you even work? You work for a firm your family doesn't own. Your family owns another firm. You have no reason to work. You're so wealthy. And he almost has a panic attack and says, I just want to fit in. And that seems to be what's going on here. It's this pretend world where consequences can't happen because they would rupture the performance. To contrast that with Terminator 2, this is a world that takes consequences as its most serious starting and end point. You know, Sarah Connor has the actual knowledge that the world is going to end and it matters what you do. No fate but what we make is the slogan of the film, which stands in direct opposition to the closing line of American Psycho, which is, this is not an exit. So how do these two things exist next to each other within the same three months in the same year that the Cold War officially ends? I think it speaks to both the optimism of the moment, which is that a civilizational struggle that had been carried out for almost half a century met its end. There's great relief. But then after anything like that, you wonder what you lose along the way, perhaps more than you realize. Perhaps you've created something that was fit only in that context, but doesn't have meaning in and of itself. I mean, many authors in the 90s are struggling with this as well. Six years after this, Don DeLillo releases his magnum opus, Underworld, that very directly tries to handle that problem. So I think that's part of what we're seeing here with this idea of humanity, agency, and consequences, is that we're wondering what the subject of the future is, or even who the subject is in the society that we've created. Right. And so Patrick Bateman, you know, as he said, he wants to fit in, but also there's this idea that comes up later that he also needs to keep himself busy. But then there's a sense that nothing really much for him to do. And so part of his seeming psychosis is this idea that he has really no purpose in the society. And so it's the only thing he can do is put up this facade, but it's so shallow and so sort of limited that he can't keep that up. And at times he reminded me of this sort of Terminator machine where in, in Terminator 2 especially you see more often this Terminator vision with the infrared and he's identifying things in his computerized way and Patrick Bateman has this sort of encyclopedic knowledge of fashion and brands and consumer devices and everything and that's all he can sort of seem to aspire to but then there there is this level in which he has this opportunity to get married to Evelyn at the beginning of the novel and she asks 
she brings it up again toward the end and there's also a social faux pas element to that where he he's like are you proposing to me and you know it's, yeah. you can't really accept within that dynamic but it, he also doesn't want to advance in that direction but then interestingly sort of shortly after he leaves her you have this chapter on the history of Huey Lewis in the news and you have these a few times where it's like it just breaks off from the sort of plot of himself and just gives off this knowledge of culture or something and one of the things that he's tracking with the development of Huey Lewis in the news is how the band grows and matures along with the musicians and one of the things that he notes is that in the early album they were very sort of lustful and eventually they get married and you see that reflected in the album this sort of more mature Huey Lewis and so he recognizes that that as a sort of growth something to sort of admire something interesting but he himself can't really seem to grow in any capacity and so he's just left in this loop where a lot of time passes in the novel and part of it is also this it's a different kind of doomsday for him where it's like the loss of youth where he's approaching 30 steadily over the course of the novel and he's getting he's he's so anxious about the idea and so he's getting more and more unhinged as that gets closer and closer but he doesn't seem to have this capacity to move through any sort of life stages yeah (laughs) i mean you know i'm 32 now and when i first read this book i read it in college a college sweetheart gave it to me we read parts of it together it was one of her favorite books and uh, it's very strange like almost somatic flashbacks uh to spending time with her she's since passed sadly but um uh while going through it and i couldn't you know when i was reading it then it was at least a little bit more comprehensible to me that somebody in their 20s mid-20s would be like oh my god i'm approaching 30 but now that i'm like past 30 i realize like the joke of what's being told there there's sort of this empty obsession with youth youth is more a signifier of worth because of its alleged adjacency to a certain type of physical beauty and that that's all surface so that's what's really important in patrick's world is maintaining that surface you know part of the reasons why a marriage would be devastating to him is because it would again signify an aging process but also hamstring his ability to you know murder prostitutes whenever he would like and to bake their legs and his oven and things like that. And I thought it was interesting to set that beside the Schwarzenegger Terminator character in Terminator 2, where after rescuing Sarah Connor from this facility and confronting the liquid Terminator or whatever, they hole up somewhere and he's stitching her up and they're removing the bullets from him. And John Connor asks him if he can learn. And he says that, yes, the longer he can spend with humans, the more he can adapt. And there's so much of the movie dedicated to John Connor basically showing this Terminator how to be human. And at some point, the Terminator asks him why people cry. And John Connor has a difficult time explaining why that is. And then, of course, at the movie, when the Terminator must sacrifice himself to protect the future, he says in his parting words to John Connor, now I understand why you cry. So he's able to learn. And Sarah Connor reflects on that in her closing monologue. She says, you know, if this machine can learn the value of human life, life. Perhaps we as humans ironically can too. And the reason why I think it's interesting to set those two things together is because they are really two things built around ideas of the inhuman within humanity. You know, it's almost like it's flipped when you rip off the Schwarzenegger Terminator's face, you see this mechanical thing, you know, and with Bateman, it's a little bit different. The mask like covers nothing or something like 
that. Uh, but he still, as he says, even if he's just the idea of Patrick Bateman, he has all of the basically mechanical bioprocesses that make up a human. He has bones, he has skin, he has hair, he has teeth, you know, all of these things. And so it shows that there is a sort of like skepticism or, or worry happening perhaps at this moment about what it might mean to be human and humane and for whom that's possible. And have right. we not built a society, both books seem to beg the question, that might threaten those very things. There's also a very sort of culturally mediated idea of this, this idea of the human where as a neural net, one of the main things that the Terminator learns is these sorts of like catchphrases and and things like that where, you know, the hasta la vista baby and- A and thumbs so up as he dies. <laughs> All right. Pro probably one of the most like uh, schlocky moments of T2. Yeah. These are the things that the kid teaches him. And, and part of that is, of course, there's a feel good element where it's like you see a kid trying to teach this unfeeling machine. And so you, you get that sort of more innocent element to it, although he's not entirely innocent. He's, you know, as we talked about before, he grows up among these sort of like criminal elements, you know, running guns and stuff. And he also knows how to steal and, you know, but he has a categorical imperative, right? He has a categorical imperative, which is that the Terminator can't kill any humans. He's insistent on that. Right. You know? Yeah. So he has this moral core. This is part of what makes him this ideal hero for the future. He has a moral core, but he also has a level of ruthlessness. There's this dynamic in uh, both Terminator films where you see in the first one, the Terminator tears through this police station and they can't stop him, even though they tell Sarah Connor, like, oh, don't worry, there's 30 cops in here. But the only way you can stop these machines is through this sort of guerrilla warfare. But I thought it was, it was interesting where he sort of becomes this almost sort of meta action hero figure where he's taught to, you know, the thumbs up and the, and the catchphrases and stuff. And in American Psycho, you have Patrick Bateman. He wants to know all, all these brands have all these sort of high tech things. Mm -hmm. And there's this sort of reduction to this consumer model. I mean, that, it's that... almost with, without moral core, right? It's just about acquisition and representation is I think something you're pointing to is that, you know, John Connor has ability to sort of morally negotiate with his world. And perhaps what makes him able to do that is this moral core based around human life. And that is likely what would make him so indispensable as a leader of the human resistance is that, as you say, he can engage in this sort of guerrilla war, which asks for moral flexibility. I mean, interesting that that would be needed in a war against machines who aren't human, but perhaps that's a separate conversation. Right. What I was getting at is this dynamic where you have this uh, cyberpunky dynamic in the Terminator of you need this sort of underground to really sort of stand up to these vast military powers. But in American Psycho, you see these sorts of lingering punk or rock and roll figures and they just sort of mock him. And the cab drivers also mock him as this yuppie figure. And that's the sort of world that he's in, which is so removed from the sort of cool factor that you get with uh, the Terminator. Mm. You know, the um, in Terminator 1, it's like almost non-stop, cool, tough figures. You know, you have the future resistance fighter in the long coat and the shotgun chasing down this unstoppable killing machine. And you see Sarah Connor slowly learn how to be the sort of tough fighter herself. And then in the second one, it, it's even more non-stop where right from the start, she is tough as nails 
levels, the kid is already sort of tough and ready to go to action. And you have now it's two Terminators in this really intense battle. Mm-hmm. Um, One who's, you know, it's the and it's the anti-hero inversion, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator is dressed like an outlaw biker. And in one of the um, maybe cornier moments of the film, <laughs> uh, as he acquires that garb by beating the hell out of a biker, uh, bad to the bone plays. <laughs> And the liquid Terminator is a motorcycle cop. Well, he starts out as a normal cop and then he eventually takes on a motorcycle. Right, that's right. Yeah. Then there's a helicopter chase. And and so they, they find ways to set up all of these like really core action-y sequences. But Patrick Bateman is much more pathetic in a way where at best he's this really insecure, unfeeling person. At best, he's this actionless loser who sort of aspires to power but doesn't actually do anything and he just has these delusional fantasies in his head gets caught up watching too many movies and such but you know at best he's this person that no one thinks he could be doing this and even as he does do it there's a way in which you know the the violence and torture in the novel is so extreme it's way more extreme than I expected when I started reading it it was more extreme than I remembered it there were certain scenes that were far more difficult for me to get through now than they were 12 years ago. Yeah, some some of the scenes are, are very rough. And I think, though, part of that is is it needs to go that far so that it doesn't seem cool, where there's this interest in the Terminator films in coolness in both the sort of heroes and the villains and the anti-heroes and all of that. But I think Brady Snellis in writing American Psycho wants to always make the sort of violence that we see through Patrick Bateman to seem really, you know, uncool that you don't, you there's nothing he does that is as described something where anyone would be like, I wanted that to be me. Whereas there's there's something desirable, aspirational about this idea of like being this resistance fighter who takes down, you know, these machine monsters trying to annihilate humanity. There's something heroic there. But Patrick Bateman is just purely sadistic and this really horrifying look at the possibilities of what humans are capable of. Mm-hmm. And the backdrop to that, though, in both works is in, you know, the Terminator, of course, the threat is that in 1997, there's going to be this nuclear annihilation and what's left will be this war against the machines, but billions will die in the initial loss. And there's this idea early on that comes up a few times in American Psycho of, as you said, this is the very end of the Cold War, but there's this lingering idea of nuclear annihilation there as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that sets up some of the sort of nihilism of Patrick Bateman, where it's like, you know, yeah, he's capable of doing these cruel things, but also, as we see in Terminator 2, can have these blasts that will kill billions of people, including these kids in the playground just getting completely disintegrated. Right. And those can come from evil and noble aspirations as we meet the programmer who seems like a very kind and thoughtful man that works for Cyberdyne and ends up creating Skynet. I think the other thing, you're right that scenes have to be over much in a way to fully articulate Pat Bateman's cruelty because, right, so Maggie Nelson really handles this in The Art of Cruelty where she talks about this avant-garde penchant to sort of try to shock you into the truth through abjectness and cruelty, spectacle 
practical. And in the opening of that book, she's writing in her apartment and her friend asks her what she's working on and she explains it to him and he goes, I don't really think that, that sounds too different than a Hollywood blockbuster, um, which is something that she tries to navigate throughout the course of that work of criticism. Now, when we look at Pat Bateman's cruelty, I do think that there's a certain sort of maybe avant-garde idea to shock you into the truth, but I think it's a little bit more complex than that. You know, what Ellis is doing is in the explication of the sadism, trying to undermine Patrick Bateman's own power fantasy. Lots of times the moment in which he would actually overpower somebody or something like that is redacted from the narrative and it skips straight from whatever insane sect act he was engaged in to the act of cruelty. And I think that performs two different tasks at the same time. Is The first is the one I just mentioned, where because it strips out the culminating moment of the tipping point of the power fantasy, it reveals how cruel and pathetic Bateman is and deranged in its own way. And then the other one is to make an equivalence between the debaucherous sex act and the insane violence he's committing and points to the fact that these are more or less the same thing to him. And so that, again, eats away at the idea of there being anything other than a type of individualistic hedonism at work in Bateman's psyche. And also the extent that like nothing's ever enough. It's never going to be satisfying to him. Over the course of the book, he takes more and more pills, drinks more and more alcohol to sort of keep himself stable. Right. Increasingly, know? the selection of where they want to go is less on status, like, oh, he's constantly checking his Zagat to see highest rated restaurants. But increasingly, it's like, well, where can I get the best and the most cocaine? Yeah, yeah. Well, especially after his brother, who, um, Sean Bateman, who's a character in Brad Easton Ellis's first novel, The Rules of Attraction, which takes place at Camden College in New Hampshire, which is a reimagining of his would-be alma mater, which is also my actual alma mater, Bennington College in Vermont. And Sean is able, through personal connections, to get them a reservation at Dorcia, the place that Patrick Bateman has basically built an identity around trying to get into. And it ends up being a very alienating and psychically undermining dinner experience with this member of his family that then shifts the aspirations from creating an appearance to maintaining an appearance and that more drugs, murder, and alcohol are needed to achieve that. You mentioned how it cuts away that moment where you would actually overpower the person. I didn't notice that. But what I did notice is that a lot of what triggers him to lash out, you know, there's these moments where sometimes he doesn't really do any violence and he'll think like, oh, you're lucky you get away this time. But basically, there's two main things that cause him to lash out. One is either this sort of rejection where someone's like, oh, I'm out of here. Or this this dynamic where he like he starts to start to lose sexual interest and so he has that anxiety about his sort of impotence. There's also elements of possible homosexual impulses going on in the novel where he has the co-worker who's in love with him. Yeah, Lewis Carruthers, yeah. And and so he rejects him and he's like, but I've seen you looking at me and so on. And... <laughs> yeah. yeah, which happens when he attempts to strangle Carruthers to death and at the beginning of him strangling him, Carruthers kisses Bateman's hand <laughs> because he thinks Patrick is coming on to him and attempt at what I imagine to be uh, the rough sex of his fantasies. And this like moment so shocks Bateman to his core that he immediately tries to leave the bathroom. But before he does that, he attempts to wash his hands, except that he's wearing Armani gloves. So he really just ends up washing his hands with the Armani gloves on. <laughs> 
which I thought was one of the funnier moments of the novel. The other thing I will say about American Psycho for how depraved it is, it made me laugh way harder this time around in the moments in which it's like, he's so pathetic and funny and all his friends are too. They're all idiots. It's quite amazing. My favorite chapter was the call waiting bit where it goes on and on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And they're always, oh, and they're trying, that happens at the end. They're trying to find any place they have reservations at. And then it's almost like an Oscar Wilde bit. It's so tightly constructed. Yeah. yeah. They're trying to figure out where to eat and if they can get reservations. And then also they keep cutting away to having women in their circles, not quite girlfriends or anything, but like, you know, they're on call waiting and cutting away. And do they want to make plans with them? And do they send them to the right place? And then it ends up, he accidentally sends two women both to the same place, which they were going to go to, but then they can't. Right. So um, the, the, the girlfriend meets the mit- mistress. Yeah. Right. And that that's a whole thing. I mean, would you mind if I just read a part to really illustrate how pathetic Bateman is so that people who haven't read it, it's just a brief paragraph. It's one of my favorite moments. This is from page like 162. After the office, I worked out at exclusive and once home made obscene phone calls to young Dalton girls. The numbers I chose coming from the register I stole a copy of from the administration office when I broke in last Thursday night. I'm a corporate raider, I whispered lasciviously into the cordless phone. I orchestrate hostile takeovers. What do you think of that? And I would pause before making sucking noises, freakish pig-like grunts, and then ask, huh, bitch? Most of the time I could tell they were frightened and this pleased me greatly, enabled me to maintain a strong, pulsing erection for the duration of the phone calls until one of the girls, Hillary Wallace, asked, unfazed, Dad, is that you? And whatever enthusiasm I'd built up plummeted. Vaguely disappointed, I made a few more calls, but only half-heartedly, opening today's mail while doing so. And I finally hung up in mid-sentence when I came across a personalized reminder from Clifford, the guy who helps me at Armani, that there was a private sale at the boutique on Madison two weeks ago. And though I figured out that one of the doormen probably withheld the card to piss me off, it still doesn't erase the fact that I missed the fucking sale. And dwelling over this loss while wandering down Central Park West, somewhere around 76th, 75th, it strikes me profoundly that the world is more often than not a bad and cruel place. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's also worth mentioning here, if we're talking about sort of the barbarities of wealth and what that does to strip you of your humanity, which I think is one of the things explored in the book. I mean, it's very interesting that Brad Easton Ellis is himself of obscene wealth, attended Buckley, one of the most expensive private schools in Los Angeles, where I now live, and based Patrick Bateman off of a composite of himself and his father. I don't want to do too much psychoanalyzing of that, but I found that very interesting. However, I was amazed that Dalton School comes up in this because Dalton is, of course, where Jeffrey Epstein worked. Oh, well, yeah. I didn't notice notice that. Yeah. And I think that's part of why this book is intentionally dated, as you said to me in the notes you sent me before we started doing this, but still captures something of the moment we're living in. Because, of course, there's this obsession with Donald Trump all throughout. And there is this sense that for a certain type of person in America, there is frankly no consequences and no meaning. And they end up deciding 
writing the shape of the society we live in. And it's interesting that that shapes society and it comes out of either amoral or self-interested, you know, delusions or petty interests of this elite class. Whereas in Terminator 2, it comes from what I see as a far more earnest and potentially naive faith in technological advancement for its own sake. There is a sort of critique of human Prometheanism at bottom in Terminator 2. But the reason why Terminator 2 works as a Hollywood blockbuster is that it maintains a sort of saccharine humanism to cut against, you know, and relies on these, in the Aristotelian sense, pathetic arguments for human worth and emotionalism. And I think that these two works really cut against each other in that way, because I see Ellis's work as both an indictment of the type of person that Pat Bateman becomes in the society that produces him, but also of that type of emotivism that happens in Terminator 2, that is its core moral premises, because there are so many moments where despite murdering homeless people and things like that, Pat Bateman will go on these long dialogues about how we need to help the poor in society. And these are just all elements of upholding the appearance that he's generated. And these seem to be ideas that are shared amongst all his petty, cruel, insane young friends that are at the commanding heights of American society. Yeah, notice one thing is early on, he has this exchange with his coworkers where, you know, he's, he says, cool it with the racism, cool with the anti-Semitic remarks. Someone makes a joke and everyone's laughing. And this is one of the few moments where he doesn't really try obscenely hard to fit in, but he's, you know, willing to sort of step against the grain here and say, it's not funny, it's racist. But then there's another scene where someone is talking to him about how they're so upset how Japan is sort of taking over economically. And he immediately imagines himself or he describes himself going out and killing a Chinese delivery man and then pouring his food all over the body and then his dismay to discover that actually it was Chinese food. He thought it was Japanese food. He wanted to go kill a Japanese man. And so you have this dynamic where he has these social niceties, which is part of why people increasingly they're like, you know, Patrick Bateman couldn't do that. He's, you know, it's Patrick Bateman is he's tries to uphold this, at least for show this sense of moral righteousness. But at the core, he also imagines himself as this person who at the most abstract slight will just go and randomly commit this, you know, murder. Like racialized murder, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think that's and to situate that in history, right? The consumer electronics boom, which ends basically right before Brady Stiles publishes this book and the fallout of which creates the lost decade in Japan of the 90s, which had its own version of the literary brat pack of which Brady Snells was a part here, which included Donna Tartt, fellow Bennington alum, and Jay McInerney, and a few other people. And then in Japan, it was like, I think her name was like Banana Yamamoto and somebody else and a few other people that made it over there in Japan. So interesting parody there. But the consumer boom really started to undermine or created circumstances that further eroded American manufacturing. And a lot of that centers around the American automotive industry. And so that's where his friend McDermott's loathing of the Japanese comes from is this sort of reactionary response to shifts in the international industrial order at the time. Interestingly enough, around this moment, Patrick Bateman's idol, Donald Trump, who everyone says even he himself uh, is his idol, pens an op-ed, I think, in the New York Post or something like that, titled like, We Will No Longer Be Laughed At or something like that, that it is his big diatribe against Japanese manufacturing in the 80s. 
and yet Patrick Bateman is throughout the whole novel walking around listening to his Walkman and so on. And is obsessed with Japanese consumer electronics. You know, there are several times where he goes into deep detail about what makes each tape or CD player better. And then he will order new ones to replace his old ones. And he will describe in excruciating detail the new Toshiba model that just replaced the old Toshiba model, which he also explains in painstaking detail. (laughs) You know, so much of his life has to do with things he's picking up from literal ordering catalogs and from the various magazines and TV shows around him. In fact, they create this sort of paper mache that shoddily covers the inhuman core that is at his center. Right. And of course, he's the distinctly American psycho. And another thing that he brings up toward the end when giving his little history of Huey Lewis in the news is their great triumph toward the end of their career is creating this album which extols the value of global communication yeah (laughs) yeah i mean (laughs) i forgot about that god that's good i mean and again to bring terminator 2 back into this it's interesting to me that that movie relies so much on the idea of intentions it is of course the programmer's uh not not his intention that he would create something that would become autonomous and nuke the entire world but he does however at the end there is that idea that if a machine can learn to appreciate human life, maybe we can too. Like the moral sentiment is supposed to be the thing that guides despite despite the fact that it's proven to be an unreliable captain for the future. And so it really feels like despite the optimism at the end of T2, that it is within orbit of this is not an exit because the things that it has argued up until its final moments are things that it then acts like it has never reckoned with. There's an interesting tension introduced in Terminator 2 where in both the first two Terminator films, there's this idea of you have to be careful about the technology you develop. And yet there's the two possibilities are both about machine learning. So what happens with the sort of initial catastrophic future is that we develop these smart defense systems that operate independently of humans and learn on their own. And that's how the machine decides that all humans are a threat and takes these actions that will cause this mutually assured destruction. But then, of course, as we were talking about, the flip side is we see within the one Terminator model the possibility that machines could actually learn the value of human life. And so there's this idea of we don't have to be wholly afraid of technology, but you have to design them in a way that will learn to value human life. And it's not really the kind of movie to get deep into what exactly that looks like or means. But I thought it was interesting how it's almost incidental, you know, as as you're saying the programmer guy isn't actually malicious. He just finds this chip and and is like, well, we could develop these vast systems. And in theory, the idea of taking human decision-making out of the equation, you know, as the programmer would imagine it, is this morally good thing where it it makes everything safer and faster and everything. But of course, there's the threat that machines will learn to try to kill us all. Right. Well, and we also live downstream now from, you know, removing the human hand from certain decisions and it creates very difficult problems and makes it so that our agency is suddenly in question, which has all sorts of political ramifications, of course. We see uh, at the end of American Psycho that Patrick Bateman's automated teller, he starts seeing it give him weird messages saying to... It tells him to, yeah, at some point it wants it to feed him a cat, which I thought was very funny, but also to like cause a scene at Sotheby's. Yeah. And also keep killing people, you know. It's, it tells um, him to kill the president. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it tells him to kill the president. Yeah. And I think it is interesting to live downstream from both of these movies because it's sort of like, you know, I'm not necessarily like a techno pessimist or anything like that, but it is worth noting, again, like I said, how much what happens when we remove the human hand from certain things and that this sort of elite finance class or whatever has only managed managed to acquire more power. I mean, Donald Trump, Patrick Bateman's idol, was president for four years. So when people talk about how different things are now, which I hear a lot, I think one of the ways in which the project of double vision is very helpful in thinking about art and society and our relationship to both is that you start to realize that you're actually a part of issues that far precede you and are way more rich and complicated and sometimes dumber than you ever anticipated. And reading these two books side by side, I feel like I got a clearer sense of that in a way that I didn't have before. It's definitely very interesting looking back and seeing, you know, part of my idea with this is this method of looking through these two separate visions of this one moment. And then you kind of like see a little further through each other in that way. And so, you know, you get, for instance, with technology, you get a lot of the consumer end in American Psycho, and then you get the military end in Terminator 2. And there's these exchanges between them. So when we see the programmer in Terminator 2, when they do the raid on his house, you have the kid playing around with his remote control, but you have this consumer boon, which is part of what makes the sort of tech growth appealing. But then you also have the Terminator, it's looking at the sort of wider concerns of, of where this is all going. Uh, one of the things I thought was interesting is the way in which the Terminator units can disguise as humans. In the first one, it's just by voice. But then in, in Terminator 2, you have the liquid one, as you're describing, has more capabilities, and he can actually visibly become basically anyone of roughly his size. And so you, ha you have this dynamic where it's it's not just this, in Terminator 1, it's like almost, there's a horror movie element to it of this unstoppable killing machine is coming after you and what do you do in that situation? In this one, you get more of this challenge of machines sort of disguising as people and trying to override our empathetic responses at which you get when he disguises as the foster mom. Yeah, yeah, over the phone. Yeah, and you know, I guess I'll have... Uh, I'll have to go here, so I'll end it with this. When you take a look at the consumer end and the military end, and you situate this book and this movie in time, it's important to realize the ways in which one hand washed the other. There is a moment where Nixon is talking to Khrushchev, I think, and he says, you know, every American should be able to choose their government like they pick out all the millions of different refrigerators they have or whatever. This idea of consumption was spot welded to America's identity within the Cold War, which was, of course, a military endeavor. And it was also the Cold War that led to things like offshoring and the boom of services and the creation of cheap commodities from abroad and stuff like that, that start to undermine those very structures. And I was fascinated to watch Patrick Bateman's obsession with these consumer goods and then the military end, as you say, in Terminator 2 kind of collide and sort of lay out culminating moments of the Cold War idea ideology right before it ends. Right, yeah. I'll let you start heading out, but I want to thank you for coming on. This is a great topic that you pose and great conversation. Uh, next week, I'll be interviewing a cheerio, so not quite as exciting, but people should keep tuning in. <laughs> yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan, so I was very flattered to be asked on. <laughs>